I don't know what's real. I don't know what's not real. Limited Capacity is a collection of six darkly amusing stories about the mysterious ways we interact with the internet and with each other. There's something going on with him. It's like an act. I don't trust him. What? You're staring at me like I should say something, but I don't really know what to do here. That's the whole name of the game. Don't talk about how the town isn't real. Do you understand? Limited Capacity. Available now on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Hey there, I am comedian Peter Oldring, and I'm here to tell you about my podcast, This Is That. It's hosted by myself and my comedian friend, Pat Kelly. This Is That uses the same serious audio techniques for comedy as others do for journalism. So it's phone interviews, narrative documentaries, archival news clips, witnesses on location, found footage, and so on. But on this podcast, everything is fabricated. It's like a completely fake, in-depth look at the issues, culture, and personalities shaping our world today. The world is changing every day. Completely fabricated nonsense matters now more than ever. Now here's the first episode, Texas Sugar Water and Ball is Soccer. Have a listen. The world is changing every day. But one thing that doesn't change is current affairs programming. Hi, I'm Peter Oldring. And I'm Pat Kelly. And you're listening to This Is That, a show that brings you stories you won't hear anywhere else. Are you people mad? This gives me great grief. The very thought of that offends me. It's a terrible idea. Documentary. I just love the idea. Come on. I just couldn't believe my ears. Talon, Texas is a small town located in the southeast corner of the state with a population of approximately 10,000 people. The municipality has recently received a lot of attention for making the audacious decision to add sugar to their local water supply in an effort to make it taste sweeter. I'm now joined by Hester Griggs, the town's utilities commissioner, to explain why they've opted to do this. Hello, Mr. Griggs. Yeah, how you doing? Good, how are you, sir? I'm doing very well. I'd invite you to call me Hester, please. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Uh, So, Hester, tell us, uh, how did the idea of adding sugar to the town's water supply come about? Yeah, well, as a utilities commissioner, one of the things I oversee is the water consumption in the town. Now, I've held this position for over 20 years, and what we've been steadily noticing is that the amount of water being consumed in our town has dropped. Uh, and yet the population has increased. So the the question is, well, why aren't people using the water in the same way that they was? Uh, you know, residents and, and uh, kids, uh, or instead of drinking the tap water, they'll go out and they'll get a, a soda, or they'll go and get an energy drink, or they'll go to a, a fountain uh, to, uh, at a store, and they'll fill, that, fill up one of their cups with ice, and they'll fill it with a uh, carbonated drink. And and so what we decided is that there is a health element to the amount of water that someone drinks. We need to make sure that our residents, that our children are encouraged to drink water up to eight glasses a day, as is stipulated by the National Alliance of Health. 
So what we said is if we're going to get people to have more water, we got to make something in it that's going to kind of get them wanting it. And and that's when it came to us, well, why don't we just put a little something in there to kind of sweeten that water? Okay, so exactly how much sugar are you adding to the to the water? Is it a noticeable taste? Or you can taste it, yeah, otherwise ain't no point in doing it. This is sweet, sweet water. It turns out to be approximately four tablespoons of sugar for an eight-ounce cup. Wow, uh, that uh, sounds like a, a lot of sugar, is it? Well, it, it's it. I wouldn't say it's a lot of sugar, but it it certainly comes out pretty thick. So, when you're saying that sugar is is going into all of the tap water, does that include even the water that comes into the showers and the toilets? Of oh yeah, it's the same water that comes out of the main supply. So, it, what you're going to be noticing when you're getting in the shower is you might come out a bit sticky. Wow. So how have the residents of your town been responding to this? Are they enjoying the... Uh... Oh, they can't seem to get enough of it. I'll, I'll tell you right now, the idea of simply eight cups a day, we can't seem to get residents to stop at eight. They they want to, you know, have 12, have 15. Yeah, I see more and more people, they'll go to get their takeout food, but they'll say, I don't need any soda with that. I got a jug that I filled up from home. So I guess finally, are you are you concerned at all uh, with the amount of sugar that, uh, you know, residents of your town are consuming? I wouldn't say there's too much concern. Uh, uh, you have to remember, yes, there's a bit of sugar being consumed, but the more important part is that our citizens are getting their eight cups of water, and in many cases more. The sort of the upside overweighs the downside unless you got diabetes. And then in that case, we're kind of recommended for the diabetic uh, citizens kind of cut it off at about four cups. Well, I, I want to thank you for being on the program, Mr. Griggs. It, uh, it certainly sounds like an innovative idea. Well, thank you very much, and we certainly uh, invite any of your listeners, if they're passing on through Texas, to come on and enjoy a, a glass of our sweet, sweet tap water. When the story you just heard originally aired on the radio, we received a lot of feedback. Here's what real people had to say about a town in Texas putting sugar into their tap water. Sugar in the tap water, I never heard anything so totally stupid in all my life. Not to mention the fact that you got to take a shower and come out a little sticky. I think all around that just doesn't seem like a very healthy idea. Who in the heck would put sugar in the water? That is so insane. Please, 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 no, no, no sugar in water. I can't believe they're showering with it and coming out of the shower sticky. Sugar is a drug. Sugar is a drug. Many studies have shown that it's toxic. Does this individual have any idea the harm, the metabolic harm to the cellular structure that sugar does? Sugar in the water? Come on, man. Come on. What about dental concerns? I used to be a certified dental assistant and um, what I know from health and nutrition is it's not a good idea. Drinking sugar water is not water. That is sugar. People don't need sugar in their water. They need 
education. I think it's a great idea, but what you fail to tell us is the percentage of water to sugar. Four tablespoons of sugar to eight ounces of water. Four tablespoons of water for an eight-ounce cup of water. Four tablespoons of sugar per eight-ounce glass is pretty much like drinking a soft drink or anything else. That's damaging. We're not supposed to have sweets, number one. I love that idea of adding sugar to the water supply. I love it. Uh, I mean, if the drinking water is that appalling, there must be a reason. Am I really hearing this right? Would anybody really do that? Oh my God! <laughs> Does competition in youth sports have a negative effect on our kids? Some people say yes. Others say absolutely. And to address this problem, there are sports associations that have removed the notion of keeping score altogether. Well, my friend Pat Kelly has found a youth soccer league that has taken the idea of non-competitive sports one step further. Bring it in, everybody. Come on, hustle up, hustle up. Zachary, get up. Come here. My name is Helen Dabney Coyle, and I am the director of the Mid Lake Youth Athletic Association. Okay, good work, everybody. Everybody feeling warm? Okay, um, over the past couple of years, we've had a hard look here in Mid Lake um, at some of the competitive aspects towards uh, youth and sport. Uh, specifically last year um, in our soccer program, we took away the notion of scoring. So uh, we didn't have to address winners and losers. And, and that went very well, but in many ways we felt it didn't go far enough. So this year, to uh, further address some of the negative side of competition, uh, we've actually removed the ball. So in Midlake, we're playing <laughs> ballless soccer. And the kids are loving it. Uh, who would like to pretend to have the ball first. Okay, Max. Max is going to start with the ball. Everyone on Max's team, come here, come here. Uh, my name is uh, Keith Schultz, and I am the uh, head coach of the Thundercats. Okay, here we go. The boys and girls under 11 uh, ballless soccer team here in Midlake, Ontario. Okay, freeze. Everyone freeze, 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 freeze. When I say Michael has kicked the ball down to the other end of the field... We all have to imagine that it's down here, okay? You know, the ballless soccer this year was a challenge as far as a coaching, from a coaching perspective, because, you know, I have to do a lot of imagining. I'm not only trying to coach skills and techniques and encourage the kids to have fun, I'm having to keep track of exactly what's going on with the game or a particular drill. It's very difficult without a ball. Zachary, are you going to join us today? The ball is down here. I was playing with my own ball. No, you're not playing with... So is it difficult to tell then when someone's scored or or hasn't scored if there's no ball? It is. I mean, because you're going off of the kids, you know, interpretation of how the play went down. So sometimes the goalkeeper will say, you know, I saved that. And you kind of have to take their their word for it. All the way to the net. All the way to the net. Now boot it. Good. That's a goal. That's a goal. Unless, of course, Stephen, was it in? Do you think that went in? Nah. Okay, okay, no goal. Here we go. I'm Sonia Peterson, and my son Dane plays for the Thundercats. You know what? Ball of soccer is the best thing that's ever happened to him. 
Yeah, you know, he uh, isn't the most athletic kid. <laughs> and now, you know, if he tells me, Mom, I scored eight goals today, I mean, who am I to tell him that he didn't? You know, I mean, I'm not there, you know, in his world. I mean, let me tell you, if there was a ball present, he wouldn't have scored half of those. Okay. Bennett's doing a free throw, everybody. Okay, go ahead, Bennett. Okay, no. Okay, no, 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 no. Bennett, where did you throw the ball? The transition has been going really very well. Injuries are down and self-esteem is way up. It's going so well, in fact, that we're extending this into our hockey program in the winter. Uh, we'll be removing the puck. So we're excited to see that transition. And I know that it will be met with the same enthusiasm that the kids have out on the soccer pitch. They're having fun. They're running around, and that's the key. That's what I try to teach as a coach. But, uh, you know, I do miss the days of actually coaching soccer, you know, rather than being a sort of a, an imagination captain. I don't know what's real. I don't know what's not real. Limited Capacity is a collection of six darkly amusing stories about the mysterious ways we interact with the Internet and with each other. There's something going on with him. It's like an act. I don't trust him. What? You're staring at me like I should say something, but I, I don't really know what to do here. That's the whole name of the game. Don't talk about how the town isn't real. You understand? Limited Capacity. Available now on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. A group of oceanic scientists believe that they have recently made an incredible discovery. After almost three years of research, they're certain that they have located the actual iceberg that sank the Titanic over 100 years ago. Dr. Henry Poole, who is in charge of this project, is here with me now to tell us more about this amazing moment for science. Hello, Mr. Poole. Thank you so much for being here. Oh, thank you very much for having me on your show indeed. Okay, well, first off, I personally, and I don't think many of our listeners have heard the idea before, that icebergs could live this long. Tell us a little bit more about that. Yes, well, of course, at the center of an iceberg, that ice has been there for uh, over thousands of years. Uh, in the North Atlantic, uh, the typical pattern of an iceberg, uh, it follows a clockwise pattern in the North Sea. So what happens is that as the iceberg itself heads south, it loses a little bit of its mass, but then it's thrust back up north where it regains the ice. So in the North Atlantic, these icebergs can live for hundreds of years. So tell us about your research. How did you find this iceberg? In layman's terms, it was simply looking. But in science terms, of course, it was tracking. So what we were doing is we had to go back to the actual date and location when the Titanic was sunk. Then we put that into a very sophisticated software program to loosely figure out, following this clockwise pattern of the North Atlantic, where this berg might be today. So that brought us down to about 40 bergs. Uh, then we just simply went by eye accounts of what people saw. Uh, when they were aboard the Titanic, what the actual iceberg looked like. This detailed notes. I'm that sorry. Were what? So, eyewitnesses. Yes. As we know, there is no longer any living survivors. No. Of these the Titanic, are these are detailed notes that that were kept as to what they actually saw. Eyewitness well, accounts. There's written. literally hundreds of accounts of this berg, and and the reason that we that there were so many accounts is because it was a, pecu a peculiar berg. People that, referred to people referred to it as it. It looked as though it was a three-peaked berg. 
and uh, everybody said that uh, the Berg, in a very peculiar manner, listed to the right. Okay, so now you've you've discovered this. Iceberg. We've located what, that. Of what, course, what, what at, do you, where do you go from here? How at do you that pinpoint? point, we need science to uh, step up and say this is the berg. So we did extensive uh, sampling of the ice, uh, and the thing that pushed us over the edge is that we found boat paint, okay. and so that using that as uh, having that to corroborate the you know the eyewitness of what they were looking for then it has the boat paint we believe with a certainty of 94 percent that this is the berg and we found a teacup frozen in the ice one can sort of imagine the last time that that teacup was held was you know by somebody who was expecting that evening to go very differently so now that you have found what you believe mm. to be the uh, iceberg that yeah. sank the Titanic, what happens yeah. now? What happens to this iceberg? Well, we, there's been a lot of discussion about what we do. Do we make it a national park? Do we set a boat service so that people can go and see it? Mm -hmm. um, do we you know, pull it into Halifax Harbor and put it in a refrigerated museum? All of those are very costly. What we've decided to do in honor of those that perished at the hands of this frozen monster is that we will simply blast it with TNT. Well, it certainly is fascinating, and I, I want to say congratulations on this exciting find, and thank, thank you, you for being so here much. today. Thank you very much. We all know that customs officers don't have a great reputation for being particularly friendly. In fact, some can be prickly or even downright rude. Well, Canada has decided to do something about this. Murray Swift of the Canadian Border Services Agency is set to lead a program to educate his staff on being more personable. He joins me now to tell us more about the program. Hello, Mr. Swift. Hello. Hello. Thank you for being on the program. Not a problem. So tell us why Canada Customs has decided to change its policy uh, in regards uh, to how our officers are being trained. Well, our policy has always been to uh, maintain a certain level of security, Canadian uh, borders, uh, whether it be by uh, crossing through air or through land. Uh, or by sea. Have, excuse me? Uh, I said, or by sea. Something funny? I, no, I was I was actually. Uh, there is no concern whatsoever with the uh, demeanor of our officers at our ports. It's never been a concern. Oh, I'm talking about our crossings within the airports or our vehicular crossings uh, with the border with the United States. Right. Sorry, I wasn't aware of that. I I had. Uh, no, I guess you weren't. Now, if you wouldn't mind, I'd like to continue with my answer to your first question. Okay. Absolutely. There has been concern as of late as to whether or not. Uh, we could be more friendly and welcoming to uh, people who are crossing our borders, and uh, we have been ordered to do just that, improve our, our demeanor. And, and uh, why is that? Do, do, do you uh, agree with uh, some of the allegations that... Why is what? Um, I was just saying, why, why... Why have we been asked to improve our uh, demeanor? Yes, or perhaps, uh, allow me to change the question a little bit here. Uh, do you agree with... Um, so, which this... question are you asking, sir? 
I'm I'm just skipping forward to get a sense here whether or not you personally agree. Uh, what that are some, you skipping forward to? Uh, to th- you want me to answer the first question or not? Certainly, I was I just I was wondering if you would also agree that that uh, with the perception that uh, some of our officers can at times be uh, impolite or uh, or abrupt, uh, or as some travelers have alleged, uh, even uh, to the point of being rude. Do you was that was that a question? Yes, I just wondered if if you yourself uh, agree with that perception. Not at all. Okay, well, why don't we skip ahead to, uh, a couple of questions here? Um, exactly, how are you planning on retraining these officers uh, to to make a difference uh, in their general demeanor? The officers will be uh, attending a series of uh, workshops in which they will learn. Uh, the merits of uh, improving their interpersonal skills when dealing with uh, people crossing into Canada. Yes, I, I, I was hoping to get a, a sense, if we can go into detail, of, of maybe uh, how uh, the officers... The are details trained. are that it's a series of workshops in which our officers will take part in to work on their sensitivity towards their interactions with travelers coming into Canadian borders. I don't understand what's so hard to comprehend about that. I was just wondering if, if you were able uh, or interested to comment on uh, what some of the, these workshops uh, might, might entail. Let me ask you, what do you think these workshops might entail? Well, I had thought um, perhaps role-play... Well, maybe you didn't think. That's the big thing here, isn't it? Maybe you didn't do a lot of thinking. You were doing a lot of wondering. Let me ask you. Oh. What are your interactions with our border guards like? I would say the the lion's share of my. You would say, or are you saying? Well, I I am I'm saying that um, in large part, uh, most of my interactions have been you know, very professional, and uh, however, uh, I certainly do um, understand, or I certainly I have had experiences. Let me help you out here. Are you saying that the demeanor of the officers needs to be softened somewhat? Is that what you're saying to me? I would say that I, I, I certainly do want to... Are you saying to me that you think the demeanor of our border guards needs to be softened? I wouldn't say on all officers, but I, I do think I'm that... I'm asking you a question, sir. Yes. Do you think that the demeanor of our border guards needs to be softened? I would, I would say... Uh, it's a yes or no question, sir. Well, as the first... Do you think that the demeanor of our border guards needs to be softened? Yes. Well, there you go. That's why we're having workshops. I've got a question for you. Okay. How many more questions are left in this interview? Uh, well, I had three more questions that I was hoping to ask. Okay, well, let's leave it to one, okay? Well, who will be um, conducting the workshops? Who actually leads the uh, these workshops? I will be. Well, thank you very much for your time. Me? The plan that I've heard sounds absolutely horrible. Really? This is that. And now, here's a piece from the This Is That archive. January 1st, 2000. That was the day that the computers on which we all depend would fail us, sending the planet into a swirling whirlpool of chaos. Of course, that didn't happen. Eric Sorensen reports the Y2K bug, well, it's been a no-show so far. 
when the clocks turned to January 1, 2000, the world did not end. So what happened to all the doomsdayers that said it would? This is where I did my exercises. That's my chin-up bar. This over here is my... Many sheepishly returned to their daily lives. These are my books. But for some, the news of the non-event that was Y2K would take longer to arrive. Angela's ashes? Yeah. I can just recite it to you. I know it off by heart. Wow. Yeah. That's because they headed underground, motivated by the belief that they would be protected by makeshift bunkers. I would put on plays with my pillow. I passed the time a lot doing that. Norman is not unlike other preppers who headed underground to protect themselves from Y2K. However, he is different in that he emerged this September, almost 14 years after the world was supposed to come to an end. 5,006 days. Well, my name is Norman Feller. And I guess around these parts, I'm best known as the guy who spent 14 years in a bunker in his backyard. I was part of a small group of people called the 15-year preppers. And what we believed was that, you know, Y2K would send the world into a fit of chaos. And it would have taken 15 years for the world to be uh, inhabitable again. Your decision to come up at 14 years, a a year before you had planned, what prompted that? Well, you have to understand that 15 years is a very long time to be by yourself in a windowless bunker underneath your backyard. As well as I became very curious as to whether or not I was right, and I chose to come up. And when I did, I discovered that The world hadn't ended, and I had basically wasted 15 years of my life. When Norman emerged, there were many things in his life that surprisingly had stayed the same. His house was still standing, his car was in the garage. I get a little nervous around this many people, so... But 14 years is a long time, and to Norman, a lot has changed. Here we are uh, in a shopping mall that you used to uh, visit before you were in your bunker. Did you see anything changed? The big one for me is that everybody's got a personal telephone in their hands. I suppose... Look, look, everybody's looking at them. Where's all the music stores and the bookstores? So did acid rain just stop? Or I mean, I can't believe that The Simpsons is still on and they went and cancelled Friends. Well, Joey still went on to have his show. Which is crazy, because Chandler was the one that everybody wanted to watch, right? Do you mind if we stop for a cigarette? Uh, We'll have to go outside, yeah? What? Sadly, Norman's personal relationships have changed, too. Hi, Norman. Hello, Debbie. Hi, I'm uh, Debbie Feller Parkins, uh, Norman's wife, Norman's ex-wife. Come on in. This is my husband, Jim. Hi, Norman. Jim Parkins. Jim Parkins. Pleasure to meet you. Nice to meet you, too, Jim. You know, at the the time of Y2K, he (laughs) sort of went crazy with the bunker and the survival and I just didn't have the same opinion that the world was going to, you know, go so awry and um, I wasn't invited into Norman's bunker. I'm just here to uh, apologize to you, Demi. I'm, of course, very sorry that I had abandoned you. Well, thank you, 
Norman, I really appreciate that. Jim? Okay, welcome to come in. We're going to have some hamburgers this afternoon. I don't think I would enjoy that. Okay. Um, thank you, and you look wonderful. Thank you, Norman. Although the meeting with Debbie didn't go how Norman had hoped, after 14 years underground, Norman has gained much perspective on his life. What I've learned is that people need to stop living like the world is going to blow up and end. Y2K didn't mark the end. And maybe global warming, overpopulation, food shortage, nuclear weapons, and large meteors won't either. Start preparing for the possibility that the planet could live forever. It is a nice way to think of things. Right? Simple. For This Is That, I'm... Peter Oldring. You know what I'm really excited about? What's that? Pizza Hut now has a pizza with a hot dog in the crust. Really? Yeah, we ordered one. Come, you can stay for dinner. Well, that was another episode of This Is That from CBC Podcasts. This show was created and performed by me, Pat Kelly. And by me, Peter Oldring. With additional voices supplied by Mary Pat Farrell and Lauren Ash. Production support by Kelly and Kelly. Head of production, Lauren Berkovich. Senior producer and sound designer, Chris Kelly. Additional editing by Max Collins. Special thanks to Adrian Cunningham, Mike Balazzo, and Chris Straw. Roshni Nair is our digital coordinating producer. Executive producers are Cecil Fernandez and Chris Oak. Tanya Springer is the senior manager of CBC Podcasts, and Arif Nurani is the director. Thanks for listening, and remember, if it's not this, then it must be that. That was the first episode of This Is That. You can listen to more episodes right now on the CBC Listen app and everywhere you get your podcasts. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.